Well, they call it the burning house question. Uh, the burning house question. And sociologists say that how you answer this question uh, will let you know what you value most in life. Okay, the question goes simply uh, like this. You got five minutes, your house is on fire, you got five minutes to get out the door. Uh, what are you going to grab to take with you? Okay, what are you going to take out the door? Now, the assumption is your family has already made it to safety, so you don't have to answer in terms of family members. But if your house is on fire and you got five minutes, what are you going to take with you? Now, if, if you have a hard time answering that question, I discovered that there are numerous websites online that will help you answer the burning house question. In fact, there's a website called theburninghouse.com. And according to that website, the experts say there's three categories of things you've got to consider that you're going to want to grab. Okay, first, there are expensive items that may not be insured. So we're talking like jewelry uh, or, let's see, what else? You've got a really nice bike, you've got camera equipment, stuff like that. Second category are those hard-to-replace items. So you want to make sure that you grab your cell phone, you grab your car keys, you grab important documents, your social security card, your, your passport, whatever. And then the third category are sentimental items. Okay, so your, your, your photograph albums, see uh, the stuffed bear that you've had ever since you were a child, you know, your dog, possibly your cat. <laughs> That's a joke. Cat lovers, don't write me this week, all right? See, a good friend of mine just gave me a, I now have a new sentimental item. He gave me as a Christmas gift a framed autographed picture of Chris Bryant, the Cubs MVP. So now I got one more thing. I got to keep in mind to grab that on the way out of my burning house. The, the burning house question helps us clarify what's truly valuable in our lives. And if we ever have to decide on our way out of a burning house what, what to grab, we may discover that a lot of things we currently think are of significant value to us turn out to be really not that important. Uh, we are beginning a four-part series today called Buried Treasure. Buried Treasure, Discovering Eternal Riches. And so for the next four weeks, we're, we're going to learn about how to invest our resources of time and energy and, and, and finances into things of eternal value, ultimate value. So to get going today, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Okay, Matthew chapter 13, and as the new year begins, if you don't have a Bible yet, I'd encourage you to invest in one. It's, uh, it's a great purchase, and you can pick one up at any one of our resource uh, shops at our four campuses. Uh, today we're going to take a look at the most priceless treasure of all to possess. Okay, the most priceless treasure. In fact, I'm calling this sermon priceless. If you look up the word priceless in the dictionary, here's what you're going to find. Of immeasurable worth. Or I like the second definition even better. So precious that its value cannot be determined. Okay, that's priceless. So precious that its value cannot be determined. So what do you think this priceless treasure is? And, and more importantly, listen, more importantly, do you know that you currently possess it? Okay, do you possess the priceless treasure we're going to be talking about today? Uh, today's scripture text consists of two back-to-back -back parables in which uh, Jesus describes this priceless treasure. Now, it's interesting because Jesus' parables are, are typically uh, short stories. They have well-developed plots. 
But in this case, he tells two parables in three verses. So they're very, very brief. In fact, some Bible scholars feel like they're, you know, they don't even qualify as full-fledged parables. They're, they're, they're more like little analogies. So if you've got your Bible open to Matthew chapter 13, let's pick it up at verse 44. Jesus tells two of these back to back, so he's going to repeat himself. He basically says the same thing twice, which tells you he's trying to emphasize something. All right, verse 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. That's it. Two parables, three verses. So the question is, what is this, what is this treasure? What is the pearl of great value? He says it twice. Call it out. You see it? What is it? The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus taught a lot about the kingdom of heaven. Many of his parables refer to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, interestingly, when Matthew records what Jesus says, he says that Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven. When the other three gospel writers, the other three biographers of Jesus, when, when they quote Jesus in terms of what he said, they say, well, Jesus said the kingdom of God. So Matthew says kingdom of heaven. The other three say kingdom of God. What's the difference? The answer is there is no difference. So the, the reason that Matthew says kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God like the other three guys is that Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. Okay, he, he wanted to convince fellow Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the Savior whom God had promised in the pages of the Old Testament. Now, now the, the Jews had a, a high reverence for God, a high reverence for God's name. You didn't even speak God's name. So Matthew, when he records what Jesus teaches, he doesn't want to say he taught about the kingdom of God because you don't want to say that. So he says the kingdom of heaven. You following this? Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, they mean basically the same thing. Which is what? Okay, it's a reference to God's eternal reign. God's majestic reign forever and ever over a new heaven and a new earth. This is the, the kingdom of God. And the Jews of Jesus' day believed that this would come at the end of time. It would be a very cataclysmic event. The Messiah would finally come. He would overturn evil. He would set up this eternal kingdom and reign forever and ever. Now, Jesus believed, Jesus taught the very same thing, but with a little bit of a twist. Uh, Jesus taught that this kingdom actually comes in a couple of stages. Okay, the eventual stage is the ultimate reality, the kingdom of God over a new heaven, a new earth, you know, God's reign forever and ever. But Jesus also taught that the kingdom of God has already arrived in one sense. So let me read to you a scripture from uh, Mark chapter 1. If you're taking notes, by the way, there's an outline in your program. I would encourage you to follow along, fill it in as we go. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. Now listen to this. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. Other translations have it. The kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of God is, is among us. What, what does he mean by that? Well, Jesus was alluding to himself. 
See, Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Savior, the King, who will one day rule over a new heaven and new earth. Now, that day is still in the future. However, don't miss this. However, Jesus is already beginning to reign in the hearts and lives of his true followers. See, people who surrender their lives to Jesus today, and this is an incredible truth, people who surrender their lives to Jesus today begin to experience a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven in their lives right now. And friends, that's the priceless treasure. That, that's the pearl of great price that Jesus is talking about in the two parables in Matthew chapter 13. It's experiencing Jesus in our lives as king today. You get it? Good. So let's go back to the two parables in Matthew 13 because there are, there are three stages that we have to go through if we want to experience this priceless treasure in our lives. Stage number one. I call it the, the, the seeking Jesus stage. Okay, the seeking Jesus stage. I've already said that these two para parables are almost identical. Uh, however, right now, what I'd like to do is point out a significant difference between the two of them. So keep your Bible open to Matthew 13. In the first parable, look at verse 44. Uh, a guy is out in a field, presumably he's digging in the field, and he happens to come across a hidden treasure. Now, there, there's no indication, look at verse 44, there's no indication that he's looking for this treasure. He, he just kind of stumbles upon it. Now, for some of you, you're thinking, well, that's pretty strange. A guy just comes across an underground treasure in a happenstance sort of way. But if you lived in an ancient culture, you'd get it. You've you got to keep in mind that in the ancient culture, there was no bank. There was no safety deposit box where you tucked away your valuables. If you had valuables, you, you, you typically bury them someplace for safekeeping. Uh, in fact, when we discovered the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls back in the 1940s, about a thousand scrolls, uh, many of them with portions of the, uh, the Bible inscribed on them, uh, there was one scroll that just had a list of valuables, uh, mostly silver and gold, and all of the places where the silver and gold had been hidden. Okay, under burial mounds and in cisterns and under a rock here or there and in a field. Okay, that's where you put your valuables. So it wouldn't have been that unusual for a guy in Jesus' day who was digging in a field. Maybe it was a plot of land that he had rented in order to farm it to raise some crops and, and he comes across a buried treasure. So what does he do? Verse 44. He goes out and he buys the field. Now, i got to address something here because there's something that's really bugging some of you, I know. It's like, isn't this a bit unethical on this guy's part? I mean, like he, he finds a treasure at somebody else's field and without telling the owner that he's found a treasure, he kind of tucks it away, buys the field, and now the treasure belongs to him. Okay, it, you know, is Jesus commending this guy for some sort of dishonest behavior here? Two, two, two quick responses to that, okay, so we, we could move on from it. Um, one is, let me remind you again that the treasure may have been there for years and years and years. You know, it could have been there for centuries. There, 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 there's no indication that it was a treasure that belonged to the current owner of the field. And, and the second thing I want to point out is that Jesus tells his parables to illustrate one singular point. 
Okay, and the point of this parable has nothing to do with the ethics of treasure hunting. Okay, this is not a parable about treasure hunting, the rights and wrongs. This is, a, this is a parable about the value, the pricelessness of a discovered treasure. So, we leave the, the details behind. Parable number one tells us about a guy who discovered a priceless treasure when he wasn't even looking for it. Parable number two tells a slightly different story. Look again at verse 45. Jesus says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. See the difference? Looking for fine pearls. See, this second guy's life is all about finding valuable pearls. It's his job. It's his passion. He's driven by this pursuit. And so he eventually discovers a pearl of incredible worth. So the two guys come across their treasure in, in different ways. However, don't forget that both of the parables are about the same thing. What, what are they about? They're about the kingdom of heaven. They're about the pricelessness of experiencing Jesus' reign in our lives, discovering Jesus to be our true king. Now, for some of us, that discovery happens when we're not even seeking it. We're kind of like the guy in the first parable. We just stumble across the treasure. Let, let me give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about here. Uh, some of us grew, grew up in homes where Jesus was held in high esteem. Jesus was a valuable treasure. And so we learned about Jesus from our parents. It's not that we were desperately seeking Jesus ourselves. We were kind of introduced to him in the family. And so surrendering our lives to Jesus was a, was a matter of course. We didn't have to think long and hard about it. You know, we just, we just did it. He was, he was part of the fam. Here's another example of kind of coming upon this treasure without really looking for it. Uh, I talk to people all the time who come to Christ Community Church, and the first time they're here, they, they've come because they feel like their kids need a spiritual education. Okay, so they've come for the sake of the kids, and then, boom, they get ambushed, and they discover a relationship for Jesus for their own lives. So one, one of my best buds, uh, he and his wife are elders here at Christ Community Church. That's how they came. They came a number of years ago because they felt like their kids need church, right? And so they came, and guess what they discovered? They discovered that they need Jesus. And so it was, you know, it was kind of a happenstance sort of thing. They were looking for it. So I'm, I'm curious, how many of you came to Christ kind of like the, first, the guy in the first parable found the treasure? You sort of stumbled across it, either in your childhood, it was just part of your family, you weren't necessarily seeking it, or, or because later on in life you wandered into church uh, because you brought your kids or whatever, and, and whoa, you discovered this is something for me. How many in that category? Good, a lot of you. You're like the guy in the first parable, the guy who finds the treasure without really looking for it. Now, other people come across Jesus more like the pearl merchant in parable number two. These people discover Jesus because they're earnestly seeking him. Now, interestingly, in some cases, they don't know that they're seeking Jesus. They, they just know that they got a hole in their lives and they're looking for something to fill the hole. And so, so they're on a search. I just finished uh, the memoirs of reading the memoirs, uh, autobiography of a guy named Dan Peake. I don't know if the name sounds familiar to you. He was one of the founding members of a really hot 70s band called America. 
Uh, in fact, over a seven-year period, they were Warner Brothers' hottest-selling act. Not, they didn't sell the most albums, but in terms of their concert schedule and whatever, they played to standing-room-only crowds where, wherever they went. And Dan Peek was one of the members of that band. If you, if you weren't alive back in the 70s, but you listened to classic rock radio, you may know songs like Horse With No Name uh, or Ventura Highway or I Need You. I need you like the forest needs the rain. You know I need you. Saying that to Sue while we were dating. She still married me. So it's good, good song. Good song. So they sold gold albums and platinum albums and, and, and toured widely. And uh, they had just finished up a worldwide tour in the country of Japan. Every city they had gone to, they played to sold out audiences. And so they get back on the plane for the, their, their private jet ride back to the U.S. And this is what's going on through Dan's mind. I'll read you a quote from the book. He says, talk about post-party depression. This incredible upward spiral of professional accomplishments was only matched in my life by a downward spiral of personal and emotional currents. In spite of, or because of, all this incredible hoopla, my soul was dying. I cried out in the depths of my spirit for release from these personal demons and to taste something even greater. I'd reached my crossroads. I, I knew now that one more hit record, one more sold-out tour, one more glowing review where screaming fan was not the answer. One more or a thousand more. It didn't matter. Another mansion, another sports car, another whatever. I was still a black hole looking to be filled up. No amount of money, fame, drugs, adulation, success, or accomplishment could fill that void. When you come face to face with that reality, it's perhaps the most frightening agony you will ever feel. Dan Peek was like the pearl merchant in parable number two. He was desperately looking for something to fill that hole. By the way, spoiler alert, if you were planning to get the book, it's a good book if you're into rock and roll bands in the 1970s. Uh, but he eventually discovers a relationship with Jesus, and King Jesus fills the hole in his heart. But I wonder how many of us discovered a relationship with Jesus like that. You were looking for something. You were, you were looking for, maybe it's because your marriage was in trouble. Maybe it's because you were wrestling with an addiction. Uh, maybe you were incredibly lonely or you were depressed. Or maybe you had the world by the tail and you couldn't understand why your successes didn't fill you up. See, whatever your issue, you were really seeking Jesus before you finally found him. How many of you are in that category? Okay. Oh, see, a lot of hands. And I'm assuming across our, our four campuses and people who are watching online, some hands are going up. Let, let me say, some, some of you who are here today who have not yet surrendered your life to Jesus, you can identify with one of the two groups that raised their hand over the last few minutes. Maybe you're like the guy in, in parable number one. You're really not looking for a treasure. And, and you think you just wandered in here today, right? What, what you don't know is you're exactly where God wants you to be, and there's a buried treasure right under your feet. And he wants you to have it. He, he wants you to have a relationship with King Jesus. And, and others of you who've not yet surrendered to Christ, you're, you're here, and there's a hole in your heart, and you know there's a hole in your heart. You know it. What you may not know is that it's a Jesus-sized hole, and what I mean by that is that nothing other than Jesus is going to fill it. Only Jesus is big enough to fill it. You know, a lot of people who come 
to Christ at Christ Community Church, who find Jesus at our church. They, they find him at our Tuesday uh, care night. Okay, Tuesday care night is where we minister to people who are going through divorce or uh, people who are wrestling with addictions or people who are processing grief from the loss of a loved one or people who have financial problems or you know, whatever. And I, I would say if, if there's a hole in your life created by some big life situation like that, check out Tuesday care night because Jesus is the pearl. Jesus is the treasure you're looking for. Okay, we've been talking about seeking Jesus, seeking Jesus, whether you're kind of nonchalantly doing it or you're very aggressively doing it. I want to talk, number two, about finding Jesus. Let's go back to the two parables in Matthew chapter 13, okay? We've been describing the two ways in which these guys sought the treasure, Okay, first guy did it haphazardly, unintentionally. Second guy did it deliberately, intensely. But now I want to emphasize the value, the, the pricelessness of what, what they found. Okay, what, what did they find? Parable number one, look at verse 44 again. There are some key words in this verse that communicate uh, the value, the pricelessness of the treasure they discovered. So if you got your own Bible, this is where you mark it up, okay? You circle some words. First word, most obvious word you want to circle is the word treasure. What this first dude found was a treasure. And I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word treasure. I immediately think of a pirate's chest, okay? Brimming with gold, overflowing with gold. He found a treasure. A second word you want to circle here is joy. I mean, this was such a priceless treasure. He was ecstatic. He was crazy happy at having found it. So you want to circle that word. And then you want to circle the phrase, sold all he had, because it had to be a pretty valuable treasure to him if he was willing to sell everything he had in order to possess it. Okay, drop down to the second, the second parable. What are the words that communicate pricelessness in verses 45 and 46? Well, the, the pearl that the merchant finds is described as having great value, so circle that phrase, great value. And again, this guy considers the value to be so great that he sold everything he had. Sold everything he had, circled it, in order to buy it. Just, just a footnote uh, to this pearl parable. In ancient times, pearls were considered to be the most valuable objects in existence. Okay, the most valuable objects in existence. The mo most valuable thing you could, you could possess was a pearl. In fact, pearls became a figure of speech. If you wanted to say that something had ultimate worth, you, you would describe it as being like a pearl. Okay, if you said, oh, that's like a pearl, what you meant was this thing's worth is off the charts. So you can feel the excitement, can't you, of these two guys? The first guy finds a treasure. The second guy finds this pearl of great value. I mean, they are pumped at their discovery. As I was reflecting on these two parables, it brought to mind a story I'd heard some time ago. Uh, you may have heard it as well. A story about a guy named Roy Wetstein. True story. Uh, Roy was a, uh, a rock collector. And so uh, one day he was headed out to a rock show. Uh, not, not like the band, rock band, rock show. He, he was looking for rocks. And uh, his two sons said, hey, Dad, if you find something, would you, you buy something for us? And they scraped together 10 bucks, gave their dad 10 bucks, and he went off to the rock show. And he walked from exhibit to exhibit looking for something he could purchase for his boys. 
And he came across one booth, and there was a, there was a cracked plastic Tupperware container, and it had a potato-sized rock in it. And the owner had surrounded it with sparkling agates, and Roy figured, yeah, it was probably to make the potato rock look a little better. Uh, but there was a sign on it that said $15 for any rock in the Tupperware. So Roy says to the guy, he says, you know, I don't have 15 bucks, I got 10 bucks. But I'd like the potato-sized rock if you're willing to sell it. And the guy said, oh, absolutely. And he gives him the rock, and he takes his $10, and he writes out a receipt and hands it to him. And he takes, Roy takes the rock home. And you know, you know what he had just purchased? He had just purchased the largest star sapphire in existence. Okay, a rock that is estimated, uncut, it's estimated to be worth $2.5 million dollars. If they cut it just right, it's possibly worth $10 million. Roy got it for 10 bucks. You think he was happy about that deal? A little, little bit ecstatic about what he'd found? Here's the deal, friends, when it comes to finding Jesus. When we first surrender our lives to Christ, if you've done that, we have no clue. We have no clue about the pricelessness of the treasure we've just found. I mean, Je Jesus tells these parables in Matthew 13 because he wants to wake us up to the reality of how generous God has been with us. God has dropped an unbelievable treasure in our laps. Uh, this, this Christmas season, I was reading an article in a Christian magazine by a young London pastor named Andrew Wilson. And because it was the December issue, it was a Christmas article called Jesus is the Best Gift. And in the article, uh, Andrew Wilson begins by just uh, making the statement that the Bible goes to great lengths to convince us that God is an extravagant giver, that God is generous off the charts. Wilson says all you got to do is consider some of Jesus' parables where he's trying to illustrate the character of God. Uh, for example, Jesus tells a parable of a king who's owed millions of dollars by somebody. And the guy comes and says, I can't pay. And the king says, debt canceled. Debt, debt millions of dollars, debt canceled. Or, or Jesus tells a parable about a, a vineyard owner who's hiring people to work in his vineyard all day long at different points in the day. And the end of the day comes and he goes to pay him. And the guys who were hired last, who'd only put in one hour of work, the guy paid a full day's wage to. You know, again, this is what God is like, this generous vineyard owner. Or, or the story about a dad who had two sons, one of whom was rebellious, wanted his inheritance, wanted to leave home. So the dad gave him half of his estate, and the son went off and squandered it and eventually came crawling back home. And what did the dad do? He threw a party for the kid. He threw a party for the kid. Or, or the story, the parable about the, the king who wanted to throw a banquet, a wedding banquet for the prince. And so, so he composes a, an invite list. You know who's on the invite list? Everybody. Everybody. He tells his servants, I want you to go out into the highways and byways surrounding community, and I want you to invite everybody you see. Tell them to come. The most undesirables, tell them to come to my party. See, the extravagant generosity of God. Andrew Wilson goes on in the article to say, then you see this generosity reflected in God's son, Jesus. I mean, you just look at the miracles Jesus did and the generosity they reflect. For example, his very first miracle, his first jaw dropper, 
is when he turns water into wine at a uh, wedding reception. They had run out of wine. Now, you probably have heard this one before, but, but do you recall how many gallons of wine Jesus made? 150 gallons of wine. Who needs 150 gallons of wine at a reception? It's just Jesus' over-the-top nature, his generosity. Or, or the time that Jesus feeds a crowd of thousands of people with a little boy's lunch. But here's the kicker, friends. After he feeds them, they collect leftovers. There are 12 baskets of leftovers. Like, who does that? It not only feeds the crowd, but has 12 baskets of leftovers. Or, or the occasion when Jesus stood on the, the side of the sea. His disciples had been out fishing all night, and they were coming back into shore, and Jesus calls out, how was it? And they said, well, we didn't catch anything. And he said, throw your nets into the other side of the boat, and they threw their nets into the other side of the boat. John records, because John counted, he said, 153 fish. I mean, so many fish that the nets were breaking and the boat was sinking. Who, who does these kind of miracles? A God who's incredibly generous. A God who's extravagant in his giving. So when this extravagant God, now listen, when this extravagant God wants to unload the biggest treasure of all on us, what does he give us? He gives us his son. He gives us Jesus. It's so easy to lose sight of the fact that Jesus himself is the treasure. That Jesus is, is the treasure. Because so often we treat Jesus as if he's the means to an end. Jesus is the treasure map. See, he'll tell you how to get to the treasure. So if you need forgiveness, he'll get you there. If you need eternal life, he'll get you. You need answers to prayer. You need a fixed marriage. Jesus will get you there. He's the means to the end. No, Jesus is the end. Jesus is the ultimate treasure. So let, let me say to you, if you're still exploring the Christian faith and you haven't yet surrendered your life to Jesus, the decision you need to make is not about finding spirituality for yourself. It's not about finding true happy, happiness or finding a moral code to live by or finding a church for your family. It's about finding Jesus. He's the treasure. It's about finding Jesus. And if you've been a Christ follower for some time now, you know, when your Christian life has been reduced to uh, Bible studies and serving opportunities and uh, living by Christian principles at work, and, but somewhere along the line you've lost the wonder over finding Jesus, you're, you're missing out on the real treasure. You're, you're missing the priceless treasure. I mean, imagine going to Roy Wetstein's house today and saying, hey, I'd really like to see that star sapphire. And Roy scratches his head and he says, oh, not sure what I did with it. He has to look around the house, and he finally finds a closet, and in the closet is, it's still in the cracked plastic Tupperware, and it's covered with dust. You'd say, that's pretty weird, Roy. That's about as weird as discovering the treasure, discovering Jesus, and then over time having that treasure lose its luster. Or having that treasure be eclipsed by other, much more minor treasures in your life. You get it? Good. Good. Seeking Jesus. Finding Jesus. Third stage of experiencing this treasure is surrendering everything for Jesus. Back to the parables in Matthew 13. 
Okay, they end the same way. Parable number one, the guy who found the treasure in the field, look at the last line of verse 44. He went and sold all he had and bought the field. Parable number two, the merchant who found the amazing pearl, look at the end of verse 46. He went away and sold everything he had and he bought it. You know, you get the idea. If you've been, if you've been seeking Jesus and, and you find Jesus, then for goodness sake, surrender everything you've got to get Jesus. Now, does this sound like asking too much of you, surrender everything you've got to get Jesus? You know, on one occasion, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, he expressed the sentiment that maybe this, this was asking too much. Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, Peter says, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? You recall Jesus' response? Jesus said to Peter, Peter, no, nobody gives up anything for me who won't receive a hundred times as much along with eternal life. Listen, friends, if we really, really consider Jesus to be a priceless treasure, then we'd be willing to surrender anything to get more of Jesus in our lives. We would say, well, that's not a sacrifice. That's like making an investment that pays incredible dividends. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those, those uh, MasterCard priceless commercials. Uh, they've run for 20 years. The first priceless commercial was back in 1997. They're currently running in 200 countries. So it must be a pretty effective message. Uh, the very first one, it went like this. A, a dad takes his son to a baseball game. And so, uh, you know, he purchases tickets and the narrator says, two tickets, $28. And then they go into the park and they're watching the game and they decide to buy some food. And the narrator says, two hot dogs, two popcorns, two sodas, $18. A little later on, the dad buys his son an autographed baseball and the narrator interrupts by saying, uh, autographed baseball, $45. And by now you're thinking, oh, this little father-son outing, this is quite an expensive deal here. And that's exactly what MasterCard wants you thinking because now they got you hooked and they're going to deliver the punchline. And the punchline is this. Real conversation with your 11-year-old son, priceless, priceless. And then they throw in their, their line about, you know, there are some things money can't buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. What's the point of the commercial? The, you know, the point is if you want a priceless experience, it may cost you something. But the value of that experience is so great that whatever, whatever it costs you is peanuts, I mean, the cost is nothing compared to the pricelessness of what you get in return. It's like Roy Wettstein spending 10 bucks to get a $10 million star sapphire. Was that a sacrifice on Roy's part? I don't think so. I don't think so. Let's apply this insight to the treasure that we experience in a relationship with Jesus. Are there any costs involved? Well, Sure. But any time, listen, friends, any time we consider the costs, we must do so against the balance of what we get in return. You know, we get something that's priceless. The two guys in the Matthew 13 parables, they were willing to surrender everything for the sake of gaining the kingdom of heaven, for the sake of gaining Christ. Now, we can't read very far in the Bible before we come across some of the demands that are associated with following Jesus. 
And if we don't, listen, if we don't value Jesus as a priceless treasure, then these demands are going to seem over, over, overwhelming, overbearing to us. We're, we're not going to want to surrender everything for Jesus if the return on our investment isn't worth it in our minds. I mean, why should we gather every weekend to sing praise to Jesus and study Jesus' word if we could skip an occasional weekend and do something fun like skiing or shuttling our kids to a sports event or staying home when it's particularly snowy on a winter weekend and just make a fire in the fireplace. Why give a tithe of our income? You know, the Bible says first 10% of our income goes to the Lord's work so the good news of Jesus can spread far and wide. Why would you spend your money doing that when you could spend it on fun stuff? You know, why bring Jesus to work, something you hear us talk about at Christ Community all the time? Why, why try to introduce Jesus into your workplace uh, through the priorities and the principles by which you operate and just being a witness for Christ when you, you can kind of keep it to yourself and not ruffle any feathers? Why, why pick up a Bible-savvy journal and start reading the Bible every day and make a point of reading it with your children you know, when you could use that time for catching up on the news or watching Netflix or doing something else you'd rather do. See, if we're driven simply by a sense of religious duty in any of those areas, we're going to eventually conclude that getting more of Jesus in our lives is not worth the cost. But if we're convinced that Jesus is a priceless treasure... If we're convinced that Jesus is a priceless treasure, then as 2017 begins, we're going to ask ourselves, what do I need to surrender in order to get more of Jesus in my life this year? What do I need to surrender to get more of Jesus in my life this year? Because whatever it is, it's worth it. Now, that's the question I want to leave you with as we transition to a time of communion. In fact, I'm going to ask you just to bow in prayer with me across our, our four campuses. In just a moment, as you participate in communion, you're going to hold in your hand a cup of juice and a piece of bread that symbolize the body and the blood of Christ laid down for you, for your forgiveness, for your right standing with God. Jesus gave everything for you. And so in this quiet moment, let me ask, what would you be willing to surrender to get more of Jesus in your life this year? Lord God, as we come before you, we're just so grateful for the treasure that you have put in our lap. Some of us stumbled across this treasure in what seemed to us to be a happenstance way. Others of us passionately, we were looking for something to fill the void and we discovered Christ. In either case, you were behind the discovery. And I, we just want to thank you. We want to pause and say thank you for giving us the very best. Would you give us an overwhelming sense of this treasure now as we begin a new year? So whatever you ask of us, we would say, oh, I'd gladly give it if that would get more of Jesus in my life. And for those of us who have not yet surrendered to Christ, may we understand um, this first full weekend of 2017, that Christ is what we need. Christ is what we've been looking for. Christ 
is the priceless treasure that will change our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.